Bibles, I invite you to turn to uh, Matthew chapter 18. We are continuing on in our verse-by-verse study. And uh, here we are, Matthew 18, 7 through 14. Do not despise God's children is what uh, I've titled the message. So let's uh, ask the Lord to bless our study together. Lord, again, we thank you for the privilege to be here. And uh, we thank you for a great Vacation Bible School week. And uh, may you continue to bless those labors. And might they be fruitful for your glory ultimately. And Lord, in the same vein, bless our study now as we continue on in Matthew 18 this morning. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Uh, we note the theme is uh, of Matthew is Christ the King, and we have worked our way down to that section in chapters 17 through 20, the instructions of the King. And uh, we note also here that there are five discourses in the book of Matthew. Uh, the first discourse, the largest one, Matthew 5 through 7, uh, what we call the Sermon on the Mount, really is an emphasis on how we should then live. As God's people who are ultimately headed for the kingdom, here's how we should live. Gives us all kinds of different principles there. And then we have the commissioning of the twelve in chapter 10, where Jesus gives special instruction to the, the, those twelve who are now called apostles, Christ's special representatives, who are sent out on a special kingdom message, as the kingdom was still being offered to Israel at that point, had not yet rejected the Messiah. Uh, He was making his claims. He was putting it out there before the nation of Israel. And uh, so we see the unique mission of the 12 in chapter 10. And then the parables of the kingdom uh, following in chapter 13, which indicates a change. Uh, There is now going to be delay in God's kingdom program because the nation did reject, as seen in the blasphemy of the Spirit, in chapter 12. And that brings us to the community instructions now in Matthew 18. Now, uh, this is such an important chapter as far as uh, when we think about uh, Christian living and how we should then live, uh, how we interact with one another. And the key word is humility that's emphasized uh, repeatedly and uh, in the context you're brought out. Finally, there's the Olivet Discourse in uh, chapter 24 and chapter 25, which relates to uh, end time things. Context of Matthew 18 is this. The disciples had just previously been arguing about who would be the greatest in the kingdom. And I imagine they got kind of animated, right? I think I'll be the greatest. No, 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 no. I'll be ahead of you. Uh, After all, couldn't Peter say, you know what? I was on the Mount of Transfiguration, I'll have you know. Uh, How about this? Uh, Maybe others were saying different things. But uh, they were having a heated dispute about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. Well, Jesus uses this occasion to present a major corrective teaching regarding humility. Jesus took a little child, set him in the midst, and used this little child really as an object lesson on the importance of humility. Now, children in this context had no legal status. Uh, Children were basically considered to be insignificant nobodies. I mean, they weren't making any real contribution to society at this point. They were completely dependent upon others. As far as position, they illustrated humility, meaning they had the lowest of position. Well, Jesus began his teaching session here in Matthew 18 by saying that unless a person is converted and becomes as a little child, they will not even enter the kingdom. Saving faith is a humbling reality where one realizes he's no better than anyone else. I have no status that recommends me to God. All of us are totally dependent nobodies, as it were, in terms of our status. We have nothing to offer God. In fact, Isaiah goes so far as to say, all our righteousnesses, all the right things about us are as filthy rags in the sight of God. I don't care how good your credentials are. You have nothing to offer. And we're all equally, merely sinners, saved by grace. Well, building on that, Jesus stressed that whoever humbles himself as a little child is greatest in the kingdom. It's not those who walk around promoting self that will be greatest, but rather those who humble themselves and see themselves as the servant of all. That is who will be greatest in the kingdom. So the disciples who had some wrong thinking, what we might call call stinking thinking, right? They, they, They were wrong about arguing who's going to be the greatest. Uh, Jesus brings them right down to the level of a little child. That's where you need to be. 
It's with humble converts that Christ identifies. And to receive one of them, he says, is to receive me, as we saw in verse 5. And to cause one of them to stumble is most serious. They matter. Jesus said it would be better to have a millstone hung around the neck and drowned rather than to cause a believer to fall into sin. Now, a major part of the lesson that Christ is teaching on humility is that sinfully putting yourself up invariably leads to putting others down in a destructive way. And that is most serious. Those puffed up with self-greatness invariably cause others to stumble. And so this lesson on humility continues on now. We saw 18, 1 through 6 last week. We continue on today, picking it up at verse 7. So let's read there. Matthew 18, 7. Woe to the world because of offenses. For offenses must come, but woe to that man by whom the offense comes. Matthew 18, 7 through 9 are really parenthetical in nature in which Christ shows that offenses, uh, literally offenses, the word offenses means a stumbling block, shows that offenses being a stumbling block is really characteristic of the world. Uh, This defines the world, but the point is, it is not to define Christ's people. And they were kind of carrying on like uh, worldlings at this point. That's what the worldlings do. They they vie to who I can put down and how can I put myself up. No, Christ specifically says, woe to the world because of offenses. At this point, he is describing what is characteristic of the world system, the world, which is the world of rebellion that follows Satan. And it's not in step with God's values. The word offenses is the Greek word scandalon, which literally means stumbling block. The word is used four times in verses 6 and 7. The concern is for those who believe in Jesus as seen in verse 6. They are described in this context as little ones. These are true believers for whom society generally has no regard, uh, no esteem. Uh, They are not appreciated. But Christ values them greatly. A stumbling block causes people to fall and be injured. And I think there's a lot we can learn here. Because sometimes even in, in flouting our liberty, we can kind of trample on people. And that's a serious matter. Being a stumbling block causes people to fall into sin. It injures them. It hurts them spiritually. The world is full of stumbling stones. I mean, a lot of people, you could just put stumbling stone across their head. I mean, they're just walking around causing people to fall. The world is full of stumbling stones, full of people who are constantly sinning themselves and leading others into sin. That's a stumbling block. It's what the world specializes in, being a stumbling block. Christ here pronounces a woe on the world because of stumbling stone offenses. Woe is a severe proclamation of impending judgment. It's a statement of coming doom. With the depraved world, stumbling block offenses are inevitable. They must come. I mean, it just goes with the world. But at the same time, God holds accountable those who cause his people to stumble. Jesus says, woe to that man by whom the offenses come. Everybody may be doing it. Some people think there's safety in numbers, but with God, that's not true. God pronounces his woe of judgment on all who lead others into sin. They're personally accountable for what they do, but also for leading others astray especially those who trip up God's people. That's the context here. Uh, Ed Glasscock says this. The world, humanity apart from God, and that's the way the world, uh, we're talking about the world system, that's in rebellion to God, unbelievers. The world, humanity apart from God, will be judged because it places stumbling blocks before the children of God. They're going to give an account for doing this. And boy, they're doing it. I mean, every area of society, they're constantly railing against the things of God, the values of God, the the truth of God. They are out there putting stumbling blocks with the littlest ones possible on. Verse 8, here's what Christ says. Remember, he has the world in view. If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life lame or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. 
And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire. This is jarring stuff, right? I mean, and that's the point. Christ is wanting to make a jarring statement to make his point. Now remember, Christ is dealing with the world here as he introduced it in verse 7. He's dealing with the world that doesn't know God and, and such people are lost and headed for hell unless they come to repentance. What Christ is saying here in verses 8 and 9 is hyperbole and really almost proverbial in nature, being essentially a repeat of what he said earlier in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 29 and 30. Christ uses radical language to denote true life-changing repentance. And he's calling for a whole change of life here. This is most serious. To be a stumbling block. It needs to be repented of. It's the way of the world. They need to, instead of being on the world's page, they need to get on God's page. Jesus is saying that the pattern of being a stumbling block, which defines the world, is so serious that unless a person comes to true repentance, which is a radical response to sin that alters the course of one's life, that they are headed for hellfire. One of the keys to properly understanding what Christ is saying here is to note that causes you to sin, in verse 9, is in the present tense. This describes a person who has a present tense lifestyle pattern of sin, indicative of those who do not know God. This calls for drastic measures, otherwise known as true repentance, in order for it to change. Uh, This is what Christ is describing in figurative terms. To make the point to his disciples how serious is this issue of being a stumbling block in causing others to fall. Now, Christ is obviously speaking figuratively because merely mutilating yourself physically does not remove the sin problem, right? I mean, you can just whittle yourself down to almost, you know, losing all your members. Uh, But you still have a problem. And that is you have a heart problem, which is deeper than merely a physical problem. And uh, what goes on in the heart then works its way out in the life. Uh, Jesus addressed this in chapter 15, where he said, Those things which proceed out of the mouth come forth from the heart, and they defile a man. Out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. The heart is the core issue. The root is the heart. The fruit is then what goes on in the life. So Jesus here in Matthew 18, 8 and 9, is really describing the the fruit of the problem, realizing there is a deeper root source of the problem as found in the heart. To illustrate the seriousness of the issue, Christ says it would be better to cut off your hand or your foot than having two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. Better to take drastic action to stop it through life-changing repentance rather than to go to hell. That's really what he's saying. And by the way, we don't have to wonder, you know, is he really talking about hell? Yeah. The word for hell in verse 9 is the Greek word Gehenna, which is a name derived from the Hebrew word Hinnom, referring to the valley of Hinnom just outside of Jerusalem. This valley became the city dump where garbage was burned, and the fire never went out. Thus, it became a metaphor for the judgment of hellfire that is used consistently in the New Testament to speak of of hell. Uh, Here's a little map. We got the uh, old city of uh, Jerusalem here, the the Temple Mount, the city of David. Outside the city was the Hinnom Valley. That's where the city dump was. Maybe Christ looked over and, and said, this is what it'll be like. The fire never went out there in the city dump. By the way, here's where it ends up here at the end of time, at the final judgment in Revelation 20:15. It says, anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. There's going to be a fiery end for all those who do not know God, whose names are not written down in the book of life. And everybody here this morning either has their name written in the book of life or you don't. 
And one day when those books are opened, what is it going to show? Is your name written down in the book of life? The only way to have your name written down in the book of life is to receive Christ as your Savior, as your risen Lord, your Lord and Savior. Well, for those constantly sinning and being a stumbling block to others, their ultimate fate is the lake of fire, or what Christ here called hellfire in Matthew 18, 9. The only way of escape is true repentance. Really, sometimes we say faith, sometimes we say repentance. Uh, you say, well, is, which, what is required, faith or repentance? And the answer is yes. Uh, really, repentance simply means to have a change of mind. And what's involved is a change of mind kind of faith. Even the demons have a kind of faith that believes. I mean, they, they know the facts and they tremble over it, as we see in James. But they're not true followers of Jesus Christ. They're, they're true rebels. We need to have a change of mind which says, okay, I admit I'm a sinner and I need Jesus as my Savior. And when that happens, it results in a true change of life. Well, the only way to escape, as I say, is true repentance. And Jesus is making the issue deadly serious. To be a stumbling block as a perpetual way of life is to show you are not one of God's children and you are in need of repentance. Not only are people responsible for their own sin, they are responsible for leading others into sin. You know, people want to say, well, it's just my business. Uh, I hate to break it to you, but God's going to hold you accountable for not only for how you live but, and what you're doing, but also how it's affecting others especially God's children, as emphasized here in context. Jesus made this whole issue of humility and having a humble view of self most serious. Those who have an elevated view of self are preoccupied with self, and they seek to promote self above all. This is characteristic of the world that is headed for hell and serves as a warning even to God's people that we are not to live this way. The emphasis here in verses 8 and 9 ties back to verse 3, where Christ indicated that pride is such a fundamental sin issue that unless a person humbles themselves in conversion as a little child, they will not even enter the kingdom. Unchecked pride defines the rebel world system. Uh, MacArthur says this, Although only unbelievers are in danger of hell, Believers can understand from this statement the seriousness of sin and leading others to sin. I think that is the point. Well, after the parenthesis of verses 7 through 9, which serves to stress the seriousness of being a continuing stumbling block to God's people, Jesus now makes application for his disciples. Verse 10, Take heed, take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Well, Jesus has already indicated in verse 6 that the little child in view, as illustrated earlier in the chapter, was really merely an illustration of humility. And that the little ones in view are actually those who believe in him. He says that specifically in verse 6. They are humbled believers for whom the world generally has no regard. Wycliffe Bible Commentary says, These little ones refer to childlike believers, not actual children, except as they may be believers. Little ones does not refer to physical children, but to Christians, those who believe in Christ. Verse 6, The young toddler whom Jesus perhaps still held in his arms was a visual illustration of God's spiritual children. Now remember that the disciples did not really value the ministry to children. At one point, wanting to send them away from Jesus. We will get to this eventually, Lord willing. Matthew 19. Uh, then the little children were brought to him that he might put his hands on them and pray. But the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, let the little children come to me. And do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and departed from there. In this context of Matthew 18, we have already seen that Jesus is using a little child to illustrate the position assumed by true believers, namely a position of humility. 
namely that of being humbled and being in the position of humility. People in the lowly position are often not appreciated. After all, they come off as little people who don't really matter much. But that is the point. They matter to God. Jesus loves his humbled people. And he wants us to treat one another properly. No one is to look down on another fellow believer. No matter their status. No matter how lowly their position might seem to be. The lowest of the little ones, true believers, are not to be despised. To despise someone is literally to think down on. Some attitude. It is to have a low view of someone. To see them as inferior. To treat them with contempt. To have no respect or no regard for them. To think nothing of them. And I think there's a lesson certainly for me here. I mean, I think this happens in ways we don't even realize it. Uh, And as we grow, we realize it more and more. Really, uh, to despise someone is to put them down. To put yourself above. To put them down. And it smacks of arrogance and pride that is not Christ-like. Rather, it's reflective of the world that is going to hell. 1 John 2.16 says, The pride of life defines the world. Now, in truth, no one is any better than anyone else before God. Uh, I, I sometimes wonder who's going to be ahead of the line when we, when we get to heaven. I very much doubt it's going to be people like me. What I mean by that is people who are prominent in the church, in the world. I think it's going to be, you know, those lowly saints behind the scenes that nobody appreciated and even realized. Tremendous lesson here. No one is any better than anyone else before God. No one has self-made status. Come on down. You see yourself up here? Come on down to the little children. Let's have children's moment. Come on down. No one has inherent special self-oriented worth or value. We all put our pants on the same way. We're all equally sinners saved by grace. None of us have bragging rights about self. I don't think we're going to talk about self when we get to heaven. That's why we're all going to get along so wonderful. Remember, those greatest in the kingdom are the humble. Those who humble themselves like a little child, assuming no rank or self-made status. Jesus here in verse 10 illustrates the importance and the value of these little ones, true believers, before God, showing that they are to be treated with acceptance, dignity, respect, and appreciation. Jesus says that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Now, there have been all kinds of fanciful ways of understanding what this means. It's one of those verses that is wrenched out of context and made to say all kinds of things. The problem is that many of these views have no weight in Scripture. Scripture interprets Scripture. And so when there's no backing of other Scripture for a certain view, one should be very cautious about holding to that view. For example, the idea that little children or believers all have a special personalized guardian angel cannot really be defended from Scripture. I mean, it's popular, but... You read, the commentators all agree on this. You really can't defend that view from Scripture. Some holding to that view want to point to this text here in Matthew 18.10. But in truth, it does not really say that. Here in Matthew 18.10, Jesus speaks of believers and their angels in a collective sense. These angels as a group are responsible to care for believers at God's direction. Ed Glasscock says, This comment in Matthew 18.10 has led to many theories concerning angels, some of which are so fanciful as to be blasphemous. I mean, almost puts angels sometimes as, you know, in, in the role of, of, of what God is doing. Well, in context, Jesus is not really giving a discourse on childhood, but rather on the nature of what it means to be a true believer 
and on the nature of who will be greatest in the kingdom, with the main thrust of emphasis being the importance of humility. This is a discourse on the importance of being humble as illustrated in childlikeness. And furthermore, those with a truly humble mindset properly regard fellow believers in Christ versus trying to put yourself above them. This is the key point of emphasis. Now, the best understanding of what Jesus is saying here in Matthew 18.10 is probably what we find in Hebrews 1.14. We're speaking of angels. It says, are they not all ministering spirits set forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? This seems to be the picture here in Matthew 18.10. Remember, the little ones have already been shown to be true believers in verse 6. So Jesus is not merely talking about children, but rather true believers in the position of humility. Now, in view are holy angels who have constant intimate access to the Father in heaven. In Genesis 28, we find that Jacob had a dream in which he saw a ladder that reached from earth to heaven. And on this ladder, he saw angels, the angels of God ascending and descending as if continually servicing earth from the realm of heaven. The holy angels as a group are tasked with ministering to God's people. And what they do is largely veiled in secrecy as the emphasis of scripture really is on God meeting our needs and not angels. Although, as seen here, God uses angels to carry out his ministry to the saints. So God has a host of holy angels who in his immediate presence always stand ready to be dispatched to help care for believers, which serves to show how precious these believers are before God. At God's command, these angels instantly fly into action on behalf of believers. I often wonder how many are here in a service like this here this morning. And I imagine when I say that, that they're smiling. And I think when we get to glory, we're going to probably say, remember when you preached that sermon that day? I was there. But we don't know because we don't see them. But they're around here. Uh, They are ministering to God's people in ways that we don't even recognize or understand. All the angels of heaven stand ready at God's dispatch to wait on these little ones. Again, MacArthur says, the implication is that the holy angels never take their eyes off God, lest they miss some direction from him regarding the task they are to perform on behalf of a believer. That seems to be the sense here. Therefore, it is truly horrific to think about treating one of these little ones, believers in Christ, who are so special to God, with disdain. Can you imagine God having his host of angels attentively ready at his instruction to wait upon them, while at the same time being someone who is seeking to treat them with contempt in a destructive manner? That is really a serious thing. A.B. Simpson said, I would rather play with forked lightning or take in my hand living wires with their fiery current than to speak a reckless word against any servant of Christ or idly repeat the slanderous darts which thousands of Christians are hurling on others to the hurt of their own souls and bodies. If you or I are ever tempted to despise a fellow Christian, just keep in mind that God's angels are charged with their care just as they are charged with your care. No one is any higher than anyone else in heaven's eyes. Humility serves as a stepping stone for others, while pride serves as a stumbling stone. Let us be stepping stones that help others in their walk instead of being a stumbling stone that brings others down. In this, we will be in step with heaven. See what I did there? What a great encouragement to Christians that God so cares for us that he constantly dispatches these awesome spiritual beings to come to our assistance as he so directs. Jesus indicated that at the time of death, 
It is angels who carry us out. In Acts 12, it was an angel who brought Peter out of prison. In Acts 27, it was an angel that came to Paul in the night and encouraged him. Back in the Old Testament, the the king of Syria was very upset with a prophet named Elisha. You know, it's like uh, Elisha had the scoop from God and he would run and tell the king of Israel, here's where they're going to be setting up, so don't go there or whatever. And so uh, the, the Syrian army was stifled. And they, the Syrian king said, Who, who's, uh, you know, an informant with us? I mean, and they said, you know, the, the prophet over here, he knows what's going on in your bedroom. And so what happened was the king of Syria sent a great army to surround the city where Elisha was staying. We're going to bring this guy in. We're going to deal with him. And here's what happened. Here's what the story says in 2 Kings chapter 6. And when the servant of the man of God rose early and went out, there was an army surrounding the city with horses and chariots. Uh Uh-oh, 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 trouble. And his servant said to him, Alas, my master, what should we do? We're in trouble. So he answered and said, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. Then the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Woo! Maybe we're not outnumbered after all. God, in unseen ways, is taking care of his own. And we are immortal until our job is done. The host of heaven is always at the ready to take care of God's people as directed by the Father himself. Now, how horrendous then to mistreat those that heaven so cares about. Psalm 34, 7, the angel of the Lord encamps all around those who fear him and delivers them. One time when I was in Bible college, uh, I was out on a prayer walk at night. It was dark. I was in a neighborhood park a few blocks from where I went to school, Bible college. And suddenly, as I was out there, I thought all by myself, there was a figure that I noticed was walking straight towards me. And you know what happened? Fear began to creep up in my soul. (laughs) Out loud, I quoted this verse. Out loud. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Well, suddenly whoever was walking towards me, veered off in another direction. Now, maybe they were just startled to hear me quoting out this verse. (laughs) Whatever the case, it reminded me of God's protection. And sometimes, in spite of our our lack of wisdom, he does take care of us. Uh, This is all this to say, we, we should be wise, and I'm not sure it was wise to be out in that context after dark all by myself. We don't want to presume on wisdom, But it is true that God cares for his own and he uses angels in that process to do it. And seemingly he does this most often in incognito. We don't even know what's happening. Verse 11, for the son of man has come to to save that which was lost. Now this verse is certainly biblical in the sense that it is found almost in this exact form in Luke 19.10. However, the textual support of this verse is weak in that the older manuscripts don't have it here. And because of this, many scholars think that it was probably inserted here by a copyist. Well, Jesus has been emphasizing the value and importance of even the weakest, seemingly the most insignificant, and the most immature of believers. These are described in terms of little ones. Actually, the phrase little ones is brought out three times in the surrounding context, being found in verse 6, in verse 10, and again in verse 14. Christ is very concerned about these little ones, about their spiritual well-being. And sometimes people are a little more mature, can kind of look down on those little ones. Watch it. You might not be as high up as you think you are. Uh, I speak to myself first and foremost. Uh, Christ is very concerned about their spiritual well-being, emphasizing it's most serious to be a stumbling block to them or to in any way despise them, which would be spiritually harmful. And from there, Christ segues into the concern that God has for these little ones. 
Should they become wayward? Should they go astray? What should, we, what should our attitude be? Just say, well, man, it happens. No. Little ones who are immature and especially vulnerable to getting off track should be, we should be concerned about. God cares and so should we. And if we are properly humble in caring for others, we will. It's human pride that is so quick to write people off or to put others down, including the weak and the vulnerable. You know, blessed are the merciful for they shall obtain mercy. To illustrate God's concern for vulnerable believers who wander, Jesus shares this parable in verses 12 and 13. Here's what he said. What do you think? That's an interesting way to start it, isn't it? What do you think? Uh, Let's do some thinking, shall we? Let's think about this. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine and go to the mountains and seek the one that is straying? And if he should find it, assuredly, I say to you, he rejoices more over that sheep than over the ninety-nine that did not go astray. Now, in Luke 15, 3 through 7, Jesus shares this same basic parable, but there he makes a different application. In Luke 15, the emphasis is on God seeking the lost who are not his children. But here the emphasis in Matthew 18 relates to wandering little ones, true believers who do know God, but have gotten off track and gone astray. The application here is in regard to wayward believers. That's the whole context here. What we might call backslidden. ESV study Bible. Here the wandering sheep represents a believer. But in a similar parable, Luke 15, it's an unbeliever. New believers who get off track are not to be despised. That is, looked down upon or written off. No, instead, in humility, we are to go after them as we seek to restore them. They are valuable to God, and so we too should care. We should not see ourselves as above them. You know, this was the whole issue with the Pharisees and with the religious leaders in Israel. They saw themselves as way up here and everybody else way down here. It was one of their major, major problems. It's not to be our attitude. There's a lot of warnings in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 10, 12. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands, you know, I won't fall. No, Peter had to learn that lesson the hard way, right? If everybody else denies, not me, Lord, I'm in. I'm totally in. These other guys you can't maybe depend on, but me, I'll be there. Peter had to learn. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. We are all vulnerable. In Galatians 6.1, brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, whatever it is, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Come harsh, brother. No, no, no. Come with a spirit of gentleness. Considering yourself, watch out for yourself. Lest you also be, don't come high and mighty like, boy, I'm, I'm way above you and I'm way above. No, you could fall too. You may be struggling tomorrow. Gentleness. Considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. The emphasis here is on the worth of every individual believer. No matter how young, immature, unattractive, or unfaithful, each believer is a precious soul to Jesus, purchased with his precious blood. To look down on any one of them and despise them is in effect to despise Christ himself who completely identifies with them, as seen in verse 5. Now, sheep are not too smart, and they are prone to wander. And when they do, it calls for intervention. Again, in this parable, the hundred sheep represent the flock of God as believers. And one of them is seen to go astray. The concern of the owner at this point is that one who has gone astray. In an effort to restore the wandering sheep, He leaves the 99 and goes to the mountain to try to find that wandering one. And if he should find it, he has more joy over that sheep than over the 99 who did not go astray. 
And the point is, God sees every believer as vitally important. None are to be discounted or seen as insignificant or unimportant. Now, appropriately, and I want to underscore this, appropriately, this provides the background to the next section in which Christ addresses the issue of church discipline. Church discipline, if properly applied, is a matter of love that seeks to bring about restoration to a wandering believer. Church discipline properly exercised shows love and concern. Instead of just letting the believer wander away and ruin their life, it seeks to bring them back to the restoration of repentance. Wycliffe Bible Commentary. Since the shepherd is greatly concerned over a single strange sheep, how important is our obligation not to minimize such unfortunate ones? How true. That's the point. John Phillips says, in the broader context of chapter 18, the story of the lost sheep is related to the restoration of one of God's sheep who has strayed from the protection of the Christian community. I think John is spot on here. That's why he follows up with the whole issue of accountability within the body. There's a special protection and safety afforded to those in the fellowship of God's people. We are to be here for one another's protection and spiritual well-being. It's part of the fence that God has put up for our, for our protection, the body of Christ. We are to watch for one another. To wander off from the rest of the flock is to put yourself in grave danger. And then Jesus makes this application. Verse 14. Even so, it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Now, again, back in verse 6, Christ plainly said the little ones that he is addressing are those who, quote, believe in me. So clearly in this context, he is talking about true believers. Now, the Greek word translated here as perish has the idea of destruction or devastation. It is sometimes used to denote total destruction in the sense of eternal damnation. At other times, it's used in reference to physical death, even the physical death of believers. And yet at other times, it is used to denote spiritual harm that may come to a child of God in one form or another. So context determines the exact sense of devastation that is in view. And we have what we might call a cross-reference here in 1 Corinthians. Beware lest somehow this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to those who are weak. Same type of issues we're talking about here. That's why I say cross-reference. For if, if anyone, uh, anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol, idol's temple, will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols? And because of your knowledge, shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died? Note the word perish there is the very same word that we have here in Matthew eighteen fourteen. But when you thus sin against the brethren... And wound their weak conscience. You sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. The word perish in 1 Corinthians 8.11 is the very same word used in Matthew 18.14. The sense of perish in this context is not eternal damnation, but rather of spiritual devastation that harms their conscience, that affects their spiritual growth, that causes them to fall into sin. True believers will never perish in the sense of eternal destruction, as promised by Christ, right? Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, again, we have the same word, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. So true believers will never perish in the sense of eternal destruction. But they can perish in the sense of being seriously, spiritually damaged in terms of their service to Christ, in terms of spiritual growth, and in terms of being spiritually fruitful. In this sense, true believers can be devastated, and other believers can be the cause of that. And the point is, that is most serious, to cause a fellow believer to be spiritually harmed in this way. To cause a believer to perish in terms of 
spiritual fruitfulness is a huge issue before God. In view here is spiritual harm that is experienced by a true believer, a little one. God the Father does not want any of his children to experience such spiritual devastation. To be the cause of such devastation before God is incredibly serious. To be a stumbling block for one of these little ones, to despise them in a way that is spiritually harmful, or to not properly seek their spiritual well-being, is among the greatest of errors, which comes with the greatest of accountability. This was the problem at Corinth, by the way, at the Lord's table. You see, some of the believers had so little regard for their fellow believers that they were not waiting on them to participate in the Lord's Supper. This was so serious that Paul said because of it, many of them were sick and many of them had even died. Am I my brother's keeper? Yes, I am. Yes, we are. You say, well, I'm just, I'm just responsible for me. Yeah, in a sense. But you're also responsible for others in the body here. The little ones we are to have concern for. Pride is a self-oriented thing that puts others down. Doesn't care about others. Pride never builds up other people spiritually, but rather serves to be a stumbling block as it focuses on self. You know, many the great problems we have in the church today really pretty much come back to this issue. Pride despises others and puts self up. Almost skipped a page. That would have been horrendous. <laughs> this is the type of self-centered pride that was reflected in the disciples as they argued over who would be the greatest in the kingdom, which called for serious correction as brought forth here by Christ. In contrast, true humility acknowledges that I'm no better than anyone else, even the lowest in the family of God. Paul, who had previously been an arrogant Pharisee, was humbled by God and came to see himself as not worthy to be called an apostle, as less than the least of all the saints, and as the worst of all sinners. You know what Paul's problem was? He had a lack of self-esteem. He really needed a psychobabbler to straighten him out. He really did. He had a, I'm being totally facetious here. He had the right perspective. He had been humbled. True humility puts others before self and seeks to serve them rather than insist on being served. It is those who serve in this humble fashion who will be greatest in the kingdom. It all comes down to pride versus humility. Serving self versus serving others. Pride causes others to stumble, despises them, causes spiritual devastation in their lives. Those in this category should not expect a position of greatness in the kingdom. If they do so as a continual pattern, the question really becomes, are they even kingdom citizens? Are they even headed there? In contrast, true humility seeks to help others spiritually. It embraces even the lowest of believers and seeks to encourage and strengthen them. It goes to great lengths to seek to restore them when they are out of the way. In this whole section of Matthew 18, 1 through 14, Christ gave the disciples a needed crash course on the importance of being humble and serving in humility. This is what true kingdom greatness is all about. Humility is where kingdom citizenship begins. And then serving out of humility is indicative of kingdom greatness. It's all about humility. This is the basis of entrance into the kingdom and it is to define our service once we are kingdom citizens. John MacArthur again says, this section of Matthew speaks powerfully to the church today, and I'm convinced it does. The body of Christ is filled with believers who look down on their spiritual brothers and sisters, treating them with disdain. If you don't line up with my views, I have no regard for you. Don't tell me that doesn't ever happen here. I'm talking to me. Don't tell me it never happens with me. It's easy to do, right? After all, I know I'm right. Filled with believers who look down on their spiritual brothers and sisters, treating them with disdain, indifference, and rudeness. Rudeness. Because they consider them unworthy of special care and ministry. 
It's at that very point of the church's sin that it sets itself up in opposition to holy angels, to the Son of God, and to the Almighty Himself. We need to let the seriousness of Christ's words regarding pride and humility sink in. It's a sober warning given to the disciples by application to us. And this warning is consistent with the whole tenor of Scripture. You know, God hates certain things, right? Proverbs 6, these six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination. I mean, there's a double emphasis here. Where does he start? A proud look. God doesn't like pride. It's one of the things he hates. And then he goes through the list and he ends up with by saying, and one who sows discord among brethren. The first thing mentioned here in Proverbs 6 is pride. And the last thing mentioned is sowing discord among brethren. These are sins of utmost seriousness, specifically designated as things that God hates. In Christ's instruction, we see that pride and the mistreatment of the brethren go together, as do humility and the proper treatment of God's people. No wonder Jesus spoke so sternly to the disciples who were arguing over who's going to be the greatest. When in truth, it's the exact opposite. It's the most humble. That's the issue. True humility is really a rare thing. It it truly cares about others before self. It's easy to talk the talk here. But you know, in, in 2 Corinthians 4, 5, Paul writes, we are not proclaiming ourselves. It's not about us. But Jesus Christ is Lord. We're exalting him. And then he says, this is very, that's why I have the Holman Christian Standard Bible here because it's, it's very literal here. And ourselves as your slaves because of Jesus. Note the humble attitude here. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul says, I have no one else like-minded other than Timothy. He says, I don't have anybody like-minded who will genuinely care about your interests. All seek their own interests. He's talking about Christians. I don't have any other Christian who's really in this category that's really going to think about your interests. I mean, yeah, it seems like this level of humility and greatness is probably pretty rare. The late A.W. Tozer was one time presented to a congregation as someone very great. And when Tozer got up, he said, all I can say is, dear God, forgive him for what he said and forgive me for enjoying it so much. You know, we still have the flesh. J.C. Ryle, pride is the oldest and most common of sins. Humility is the rarest and most beautiful of graces. Well, let me ask you, are you proud? What's your attitude toward and treatment of others? That's telling. Are you humble? What's your attitude toward and treatment of others? That is telling. Our attitude towards others and our treatment of them is telling. As Peter said in 1 Peter 5, 6, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. It is those who humble themselves who will be exalted in the kingdom. God help us to humble ourselves as a little child in the service of others, for indeed such is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Let's stand and have our closing song.